Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Edubapple Emporium's Chalkboard Interview Series. In this series, we interview retired educators, individuals considered legends in their field, insightful, knowledgeable, and renowned professionals that pour their heart and soul into their students. We are blessed to be able to hear their insightful thoughts and unique perspectives on a variety of subjects. Tom O'Brien is your host. Thank you for stopping by and enjoy the show. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Edubabble Emporium. And we have a return guest today. We have Denny Thompson. Denny, how are you doing today? Hey, Tom, I'm doing pretty good today. Awesome. A uh, little background uh, Denny and I taught in a West Michigan school district together for a few years. Uh, we were in different schools, but nonetheless, we were good friends. And he was kind of the one that got my, uh, allowed me to get my start in uh, this West Michigan school district. So today, we're going to kind of go off the beaten path a little bit. Um, if you don't know much about Denny, the one thing you need to know is he is a world traveler. He is a researcher. He is an investigator of all things that have to do with biblical history. And today, we are going to be talking about his recent trip to Jordan, and he was on an archaeological dig at the location of what was at one time Sodom. So, Denny, we are going to get rolling here, and um, i got to ask you this question to start it off. Of all the places in the world, why did you decide to go to Sodom? You know, Tom, you're not the only one that uh, asked me that question. Um, in fact, uh, Sherry and I usually go somewhere in the spring overseas, and uh, we were asked the question usually every year, where are you going to go this year? And as it worked out, um, we decided on this particular place. There's kind of a background story behind that, um, as you might guess. Mm-hmm. My, my interest has been more, as you mentioned, about the background of the Bible. I've done a lot of that over the years, studying teaching and writing and so forth. But I've noticed really in the last few years how so much of um, the Bible is being questioned even more so mm. and doubted. Um, the, there's so many people that uh, are skeptical of the Bible, and the, the statistics show this out. It's not all, really an all saw on Christianity. So I just began a couple of years ago to get into a little bit more of apologetics, doing some reading. Yep. I think I need to you know, kind of beef up on that a little bit. And I read a book recently Kind of a long answer, but this is the answer that got me to stop. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. The name of the book is Is Atheism Dead by an author named Eric Batexas. Yep. He's a, a scholar. He's a historian, Christian apologist. And this book is incredible. I would recommend it to anybody. But the part of the book that want me that wound up putting us in Sodom or us going to Sodom was he had a section in the book where he wrote, um, he talked about outrageous evidence for God in various ways through astronomy and all these, all the facts and which just absolutely point to God. It's almost, it is impossible to be an atheist with the facts. But did he mention um, that one of his very top truths that he learned about in terms of archaeology, which is also part of this, that's a big factor in apologetics, was the biblical discovery of Sodom. And I thought, hmm, I actually don't know much about that. Um, in fact, I've been to Israel lots of times and studied some archaeology in different places. But um, 
I didn't know what he was talking about. So I started reading up into this, started looking into it. And it, what it did is it led me to the, the school that was actually sponsoring this whole event. It's from New Mexico. Um, make a long story short, I, we wind up being able to sign up for the actual dig, which was taking place during an eight-week segment during, from January to March, the very last two weeks of the, of the dig. Mm-hmm. And um, Sherry, my wife, agreed that uh, let's do this. So we did it. And we suddenly found ourselves on an archaeology dig, um, just kind of out of the clear blue. That, that, the fact that Sherry's willing to do that kind of stuff is pretty cool, though. You know what? Yeah, too. Um, okay, so what was really interesting when you first told me about this is, um, first of all, I find it highly unusual that you didn't know anything about this because you are an avid reader and you study these different archaeological finds that are going on in the Middle East. So first of all, I, f- I find it amazing you didn't really know much about it. And secondly, I, I believe you told me that this dig had been going on for 16 years. Is that right? Yeah. Actually, about 18 years. 18 years. Um, yeah, actually, Sodom in terms of Sodom, I, I kind of accepted the general idea that Sodom is located in the southern end of the Dead Sea. Um, that's where generally was accepted idea. So I guess, I mean, I knew of Sodom and I thought it's somewhere down there. They didn't know exactly where. But in this location, which we can talk about here coming up, this is something totally new, totally different. Mm-hmm. And so from that regard, that's something I didn't know anything about. And once we got into it, it was absolutely overwhelming. So, so your understanding originally was a little bit different than what the actual location was. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And can you, for those that are not uh, familiar with the Middle East, with Jordan's location in relation to Israel and the Dead Sea. Can you maybe just, I'm sorry we don't have a slideshow to go with this. I wish we did. But could you give a little uh, kind of a word picture that would help us to to visualize this? Sure. Um, Israel lies along the Mediterranean Sea in kind of a north to south. It's a very small country, north to south pattern for the most part. It's not very wide east to west. On its um east side is Jordan. It runs just parallel all the way down. And on the northern tip is the Sea of Galilee. And the Jordan River is the borderline that goes from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And then you have the Dead Sea, which is about 50 miles total, I think. That's all Jordan on the east side and Israel on the west side. Okay. And down to, it borders down to Saudi Arabia. So that's kind of a general picture what it looks like. So Jordan borders Israel. It literally has a very long border with Israel. Okay. Okay. And the Dead Sea is right in between a big section of that. So half the Dead Sea is Jordan, half the Dead Sea is Israel. Got it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Sodom. Now, some of us uh, are familiar with the story. Mm-hmm. Some aren't. Um, it's one of the I don't know, the most memorable stories in the Bible, if you do read the Bible, if you're a Christian or if you are a Jew. So could you explain that story in a nutshell for us? Yeah. Um, well, it's, I mean, there, there's a whole lot to it. Um, right. You know, it might be easier if I, to just kind of piece it together here at the beginning as to how, maybe if I could just suggest basically how did they even locate this place? Yeah, let's do that. that. Let's talk about okay. that. Yeah, not to not to direct the interviewer here, well, but you, um, that's you've been a, that's, there, you know. So yeah, go yeah. ahead. 
Yeah. Anyway, um, back to that school. It's, it's called Trinity Southwest University. And that professor was Dr. Um, Collins is his name. He goes by Dr. C, just for nickname. Mm-hmm. And they have an archaeology school there from New Mexico and um, Albuquerque. And he's a Christian archaeologist. Um, he had taken many groups to Israel. They have an archaeology school. They have even a doctoral program, so it's quite unique. Um, he's taken many groups to Israel on tours and that kind of thing. And I've done a couple of those myself and very familiar with Israel. Um, and he was always, when it came to Sodom, and by the way, Gomorrah is always listed with it. Mm-hmm. And people put those together. The reason for that is um, in the Hebrew mindset, what they do is they list things in order of size. So if Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom is much larger than Gomorrah, and Gomorrah is close to Sodom. It'd be like a suburb, or a, they call them a sister city. Yep. Um, just off track on that for a second. But it literally is just north. They believe exactly where it is. They can see it. It has not been excavated yet. But anyway, um, so just back to this again. He was kind of doubting this whole idea that Sodom was on the southern end of the Dead Sea. It may be sunk in the Dead Sea. It just didn't make sense. So he just read the Bible. He just what does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. So he goes back and reads it. And that's the story of Lot and Abraham. Okay. Yep. And um, they had both they were very wealthy. They had big flocks of sheep and animals and so forth. Too much, too big to, for them all to be in one area. Not enough land to sustain them. So, so they were standing at a town called, between towns called Bethel and Ai. Now in your mind's eye, um, Let's go back to that picture again. This is difficult about maps and right. pictures in Israel. Of It's just north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's kind of in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, looking down, and it's just above the Dead Sea or just north of the Dead Sea. And the story goes on that Abraham and Lot were going to separate. And Abraham says to Lot, he says, and um, well, let me back up just a second. Mm-hmm. In Hebrew, there's no cardinal direction of north. Everything is based on east. So because of the rising of the sun in the ancient world. So Abraham is standing in the mountains of Israel between Bethel and Ai. He puts his arms out. He says, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Now, his arms are parallel with the country of, of Israel, north and south. He's pointing literally down the country. He assumes Lot's going to stay in Israel because that's the promised land. What does Lot say? No look down there and i mean down there because they're up in the mountains and this is 1400 feet well sodom is not quite 1400 but it's way down in this deep deep valley deepest in the world he said down there that looks like the garden of eden that looks like the you know the nile river fertile area i want to go there and i'm sure abraham was pretty shocked but that's what he said i'm going to go directly east okay now this is a big clue for dr collins because how could Sodom be in the southern end of the Dead Sea if it's directly east of Bethel and Ai? Mm-hmm. So that started his whole adventure. And then he started to think, okay, let's go down into Jordan. Let's look at it. And then he started looking at, they're called tells. Now, a tell is like a hill. Okay. A hill that has been has had many cities built in the same place over years. In the ancient world, you see these all over the ancient world. But basically, they build a city in a spot, obviously, because there's water, there's strategic, there's transportation, there's good farming, that kind of thing. And when a city is destroyed, a later one comes along, they just build it right on top. Hmm. For the same reason. So the same reason. So in Israel, you have, for example, you have extreme examples like Megiddo has 26 levels, 26 cities built on top of each other. Wow. 
so many years. So anyway, he looks down in the valley. He's looking for these tells, these hills. He's looking for the biggest one because he knows it's the biggest because Sodom is always listed first. And that's that's a fact in the Hebrew world. The writers, they listed the first one. Um, the first one they listed was always the biggest. So he says, okay, directly east and biggest. And that brought him to this huge mound. And I mean, it's big. That he started to start this whole excavation on it took took a few years working with the Jordanian antiquities authority a lot of work eventually got permission and he started again so can, can I ask a couple of, questions sure first yep. of all how how big would you say the hill was and I and I have one other question when you say these layers sit you know like destroyed city upon city how, how deep is each is each layer well, normally, um, not as deep as you think. There could only possibly be like seven to ten feet sometimes. Wow. Um, so it's kind of surprising. Um, and what was the first part of that you asked me again? Well, how how tall? When you say oh, it's a, the biggest hill, uh, what are we what are we talking about? Just to give us some perspective. Yeah, like Sodom, for example, is um, the, the number of layers in Sodom are much less for specific reasons, um, because it was not rebuilt after it was destroyed for 700 years. Okay. Um, but but usually, you know, I would say a couple hundred feet to 300 feet high, maybe. Okay. Yep. They're not like mountains, but they're, you know, they'd be about that high. Higher depending upon how ancient and how many civilizations were built on top of each other. Uh, and you said there are several of these types of um, yes. hills that could very well be just, oh, yeah. the, just these ancient cities that are built on top of each other? That are the ancient cities. Because in Jordan, they were they were called the cities of the plains. Sodom was the biggest, but there's a whole bunch of others. Gomorrah, there's other ones listed. So there are several of them in that area, um, just like in Israel. And you'll find them in other ancient civilizations, too. Um that are down there. So he, he had Dr. Collins was going for which one is the biggest, which one is directly due east. And there's no question this was the one. This was, Sodom was 10 times bigger than the city of Jerusalem, 10 times bigger than the city of Jericho. Extremely visible from the mountains of Israel looking down. So if you're up in Jerusalem and you walk up on the Mount of Olives, you can look down in that deep, deep valley, and I'm talking 2,800 feet in Jerusalem, minus 1,400 feet at the bottom, and you can see Sodom clears the bell. So they all knew, they could literally see Sodom, and they knew the story after the events happened here, of course. Wow. So are there any other, I, I don't mean to get off topic, but are there any other digs planned for any of these possible other places that look promising that maybe they have? There to... are. Okay. Yeah, there are. There, I talked to a couple of guys from our group that actually are going. Um, they're they're talking about doing Gomorrah. I'm not sure, but it, looking at also. So, yeah, there's going to be more work done for sure. Gomorrah at this point hasn't had anything done, um, and they don't know for certain it's Gomorrah. They're basing on the the Bible, the order of the cities, the way they're listed, mm -hmm. because it's the very next one. And what that would mean is a sister city or a suburb. Would go to the big city, the massive city Sodom. They had massive gates, massive fortress um, for protection. So when the enemy came, that's what they would do. They would go there, you know, it, go inside the gates for protection. Right. That was the idea. So, so when the dig began, about what you said about 18 years ago or so, um, yep. can you explain a little bit about how much digging had to happen, and then what what really? Uh, captured their imagination or made them feel like, man, this, this is it. 
Okay. Initially, <clears throat> good question. Initially, um, there was something unique about this place. Um, just picture this big mound, rocky dirt mound, huge, that had an upper level called an upper city, and it had a much bigger lower level, lower city. That's typical of ancient cities. The, the lower city was like five times bigger. Um, so they would, you know, that what would be what happened initially is they were working first in the lower city and they dig no excuse me in the upper city they were working in an area called the king's palace where the big king's palace was mm -hmm. that was that really stakes up in that area up there in the upper city um the jordanian army had run tanks up there in the wars of 48 and 67 when they fought against israel mm -hmm. and gouged out a big area they're, you know, they're the wheels of the vehicles. They just ran up there because it's strategic. You can look right down on Israel. Right. It's right across from Jericho. In fact, um, off the topic a bit, but it is almost certain Moses camped up there because when he came down from from the mountain above, Mount Nebo, that's 350 years after Sodom was destroyed. There's some big clues in the Bible. Well, anyway, Jordan used that and they dug and there was these these trenches they dug. Well, Dr. Collins and the, and the original group from Southwestern Trinity, the archaeologists, went in there. They started there, and they went down, and they dug, okay, let's go a little deeper. They didn't have to dig only a few feet. And what happened is they opened it up, and they saw this absolute burned-out level that smelled like sulfur. It just, it, just, it just penetrated, came right out. It had been covered up for two, probably 3,700 years. Beneath where the, the tanks had, had gorged that, that ground, um, and it literally just, just poured out. So they were like, what is going on here? Um, and then that started to trigger, okay, could this be it? That's because amazing. Because it was burned. And, and believe me, there's so much has happened since then. I, you'll probably ask some questions about that. Yeah. But anyway, that's where we started, and then they took off from there. I, I, it's hard for me to visualize so an archaeological dig of, of this magnitude, um, how much how much digging it goes on and how do they do it? I mean, how is that done? I know they have to be very careful. Is it just a, uh, incredibly time-consuming? You're working on the minutia of the little things you find. How, do, how is that? What is it like? Extremely, extremely particular. Um, I didn't know much about it. I'd done a little bit. I worked on a couple mount projects. One day, and I, I did some in the southern part of Israel, but this is way beyond that. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely particular. You work with mainly two tools. One of them, a kind of a little tiny little fine spade, very small, and a tiny little pickaxe. Hmm. Those are the main tools you use. And you're working at extremely snail's pace, very, very slow, because you never know when you're, you're going to come upon something incredible. Um, we did, even myself and Sherry both found some amazing things, and the group found some incredible stuff during this particular day. This was really a big one this year, and a lot was found. Um, just for example, one of the things I came upon, I could start to just to kind of picture this as I'm digging very slowly. You have to you kind of go in a circular pattern, you're moving the dirt very, very cautiously. And then you start to see something that looks unusual, like a little ridge. A lot of times it's just stones or whatever, but a lot sometimes it's not. And I saw something that looked like, looked like that. But then I thought, no, there's a pattern to it. There's some, there's some grooves around this top. And I thought, hmm. So I kept going slower around it and carefully. 
And it all of a sudden become the rim of an incredible jar. This is beautiful rim of a jar. Wow. The head of the archaeology, Dr. Collins, happened to be standing right next to me or right above me. I was in a, I'm down below. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, once I worked it out, he said, yeah, Denny, that is a, and this guy is a premier. I think he might be the best in the country. Uh, identifier of pottery. That's his forte. Okay. He looked right at it and he, and he said, hold it up a little bit. He said, that's about 22 to 2300 BC. That was, that was 500 years before the destruction of Sodom. I was below that level at that point. Um, the area we worked in, in the upper city, and we found, so we found some human remains, some vertebrae from that destruction level, because they're really, it's all over the place. When Sodom was destroyed, it was just, just like vaporized. It was, we can talk about that in a minute, yeah. what happened. Because they know what happened to it. They know exactly what happened to it. It's stunning. Um, but anyway, you're doing it very slowly. So when you think about how, how these trenches go way down, that has taken a tremendous amount of manual labor because you're going so slow. You have to go slow because you're going to, uh, you know, destroy some things. Just really quick on, the, on another find that was uh, right next to me. I didn't find it, but actually Dr. Collins did. He come upon this skeleton that was really intact. And it was amazing. And I, he, he started to talk about it. And he, he's the expert, obviously, he knows exactly how to do it very slowly. And normally, the bones, the human remains we found were just in pieces. This one wasn't in pieces. You could actually see the head and the neck. And it looked like he thought it might be a lady because she was holding a little juglet. And her arms were kind of like collapsed in. What happened is he said he could tell by the wall structure the wall had collapsed on her. Okay. And, and he said, and he dated it. And I'll talk about that in a second, too. There's so much stuff here. But um, he dated it to about 2200 B.C., that same time period as that juggler that I found on that cover. Mm -hmm. And he, he said what happened is earthquake. Um, because they know there was there have been massive earthquakes in that area because it's a massive fault line. That's what the Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, that goes all the way down up in the Sea of Galilee, there's extinct volcanoes. It goes all the way down into East Africa, um, that whole region down there. That's it's right. part of the Syrian East African Rift. The Turkey-Syrian um, earthquakes are in the northern, that you recently heard about, that's in the northern part. So there were big earthquakes, and prophetically, there's more coming, the Bible says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but that was an earthquake that brought that wall down on this lady. And it was really something to see. It was um, quite stunning because you could literally see what happened. She just collapsed right there when that thing came down on her. So that's amazing. And and yeah. so when you're down there digging, it's got to be a little bit grueling. It's pretty hot, right? The first day, it's, it's it was really hot, and I didn't uh, drink enough water. Um, so I got I got started getting really faint. I learned it the hard way. We literally, I had to drink two. Of those massive bottles, what are they, liter or two liters? Those great big ones, mm -hmm. wherever they are. Yeah. Plus at least one or two small ones just to drink enough water. Because wow. it's really, because it's desert. You know, it's right. a desert. And speaking of hot, just another little sidelight. We found these massive mud bricks everywhere. They're all over the place um, that they built. And it's so hot in the summertime in this area that they would literally make these bricks and out they didn't even use a kiln they use the sun right out in the open okay they estimate there are 200 million used inside them 200 million of these bricks and each one of these are about 20 times the size of a, a brick in our country wow how big they are 
Um, so it's really quite something, you know. It, what does it feel like when you find something? I mean, is it, it's got to be well, like just energizing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's, uh, well, you know, I, it's, it's really quite something. It's, it's, it's weird when you're there, um, especially when you're on the destruction level, cause we were working in that quite a bit. That's that 1700 BC. That's when Sodom was destroyed. And we can yep. talk about that, but <clears throat> that was the one that really, really got my attention because, you know, you just have to, you put yourself back. These, there were people here who are finding pottery. We're finding evidence of their life. Mm-hmm. You don't find coins because they didn't have them. You find weights that they used. In bal- we didn't find balances, but we found the weights that they used to measure barter to trade. Mm-hmm. Money comes out 500 BC. Um, but in that destruction level, and again, I hopefully we talk about this because it's so important. That happened so fast. These people are just living their lives, and there was massive perversion inside them. That's well known, and we can talk about tattoo. Where that come from? Because I think we know that it just ended right then. It just vaporized. The city just burned. It, people were just. It, it happened in a nanosecond. It was over, and I just it was. It's overwhelming to be at that those levels of destruction throughout the city where this happened. And to know that they were living their lives, thinking tomorrow's coming, we're going to do this, that, and it's over. That quick. Just gone. It, you could almost equate that to like a, a nuclear, you know, explosion or something, couldn't you? Yeah. Um, in fact, you're equated to an atomic bomb, which literally, um, if I don't know if you want to jump to that now or talk about no. smart things. Well, I, just, look, okay. I wanted to ask you a little bit about more of the historical part. Could you... Tell us about when, when did civilization begin there? Now, you're uncovering things that are like 4,000 years old. And so could you tell us a little bit about when civilization uh, began there? And how many years was Sodom around before it was destroyed? Um, they estimate Sodom began about 6,000 B.C. Wow. Um, so that what we found at 2200 B.C. was, you know, many years into the into Sodom's development there. So probably that long. And, and the question is why, why would it be that far? And the answer is water, tremendous amount of springs all around Sodom in Arabic. That in fact, this is the name we used in, in Jordan. We don't use the word Sodom. We use the word tall, all hamam. Tall is the Hebrew word, the Arabic word for tell, which means hill. Like a tell is one of those hills, mm-hmm. like tell Megiddo. Yep. That mound I'm talking about, they call them tells in Arabic, they call them talls. Hamam means springs because it has, and you can still see them, there's springs all around the town, tons of water. Um, so that was the big reason. Plus, there were there, it was a hub of every transportation route you could imagine. Phenomenal farming area, very fertile country. When it during its heyday, um, the climate, which obviously the climate always changes, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. Today is incredible, but anyway, so the the to give you an idea, the Dead Sea was 200 feet higher during the heyday of Sodom than it was um, about 500 years later. It dropped 200 feet. Wow. The level 500 years later is about equal to what it is right now. What does that mean? That means there was ample rainfall because it's described as Garden of the Lord, like the the Valley of like the Nile of Egypt, fertile farmland. So it was built there because. For all those reasons, it was a phenomenal place to build a city. 
and to become fabulously wealthy because of these trading routes, the Egyptians, especially the Greeks, the, the pottery found in the upper city, that would be where the wealthy people live, mm-hmm. and especially in the palace. The palace is the size of the White House. Wow. <laughs> Literally, the White House is so big. That's incredible. The king, of, the king of Sodom during that biblical time period, his name was King Bera. He knew Abraham. He was friends with Abraham. Um, and he knew the king of Jerusalem. There's a lot of talk and discussion of that in the Bible. But that the pottery found there was incredibly elaborate Greek pottery, some of it from Crete, some of it from the Mycenaeans, the Minoans and Mycenaeans. Mm-hmm. And it was just beyond belief in terms of the designs. They even designed the inside of the jars at times. They would have beautiful designs on the inside of the jars, which is incredible. So are you so, telling me that when they find this stuff, it's it's intact and you can still see designs on it? Not normally, but it, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes it's on intact. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah, sometimes it's on intact. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Now, to, since you said there's still ample water supply with these springs, yes. um, what is it like today there? I mean, is there are there still towns and villages around there? Oh, yeah. All across the valley. It's a breadbasket of Jordan, sure. Got All it. over the place. And is yeah. it, it, would it be, now you said it's kind of a desert area, but it has this water supply, so there's a lot of green areas all over the place yeah the desert area um if you get closer to the jordan it turns greener um picture sodom is about five miles east of the jordan okay okay and jericho is about four miles west of the jordan they're looking right at each other so the area around the jordan was is even today is is lusher because there's more water in that area but yeah there's crops growing today too around the lower city of sodom a lot of it has been intruded by banana plantations and different crops are growing in that area. In fact, that's kind of hurt some of the initial excavations they did in the lower city, because some of the farmland has gotten literally into the lower city. Okay. Yeah. So um, just to kind of recap, this was kind of a central trading hub in the Middle East. I mean, you Absolutely. Had most of the major civilizations would cross through there, which allowed Sodom to build tremendous amounts of wealth. And we'll probably get into it later, how maybe that contributed to some of the other elements that uh, led to their demise. I think there's no doubt it did. Very specific reasons for that. Yeah. Okay. By the way, picture picture where this is now in your mind's, mind's eye. Uh, about five miles north of the Dead Sea, a little bit east, northeast of the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. Israel is northwest of the Dead Sea. And this big Mount Nebo is right above it. That's where Moses stopped with the Israelites, and he had this long um, dictation of what God was telling the Israelites about what was going to happen when they came into Israel. That's right above Sodom, literally above it up there. It's a beautiful spot. So it's it's above the north, above the Dead Sea, about five and a half miles to six miles, maybe max. So Moses would have died somewhere in that area then? Well, he was buried in the valley right around Sodom. The Bible explains that the Valley of Moab, um, it's right there. That's that's what it is. Do they so, know, do they know? I mean, if they know, okay. Bible says we don't know. It, it literally describes how God buried Moses. Um, Got it. So it was not a no. Nobody knows, and uh, it's really stunning because you're looking when you're at Sodom, you're looking right at Jericho. This is where the after Moses died. This is where Joshua crossed the the Jordan River. Now, it's no small feat because that thing flooded two to three miles. Wow. In the, we know it's spring because they celebrated Passover. 
So it was the springtime. So that miracle of Jordan wasn't just this narrow river. It was a massive river that parted and they crossed. And then they came straight into Jericho. And the people of Jericho, it mentions that they were um, fearful of Sodom because they were looking right at these, not of Sodom, but of, of the Israelites. Because mm-hmm. they, they were looking right at them as they crossed. And so it's like you're looking, enemies are looking right at each other. And then the battle starts. They're coming, and there they are. Wow. And we're talking, we're talking, aren't we talking like a few hundred thousand uh, Israelites? No, more than that. We don't really know. Could be all over in the, in the, in the you know, what? it's really not known. Could right. be over and could be two million. It's it's really not known. Got it. It, it's hard to determine. But I, I think personally it's between one and two million. It's huge numbers. So the tribes would have, would they settle or they camped all the way around the city of Sodom in the plains because there's way too many of them. They couldn't all get in the city. Right. It, it, as big as the city was, it couldn't house that many people. I, I love talking to you because it, it uh, offers so much more texture to these Bible stories. Um, you know, and you have you kind of have the frame of reference and more of a depth of knowledge of the language to kind of paint these pictures, which is really nice. Um, so after Sodom was destroyed, was it ever rebuilt? Um, not for 700 years. Um, set, and they know that for a fact. 700 years was the next level of that layer of cake, the tell. Remember the layers yep. I was talking about? Yep. And that was, um, that would be the year 1000. Okay. What's that time period? That's the Kings of Israel. That's when King Solomon, um, he had many places outside of Israel that are under his control that he set up as like vassals where he collected taxes. And we found countless silos inside them. Like there's hundreds of silos that Solomon use these silos to collect his taxes. Now, taxes wasn't money. They didn't have money yet. Not until right. about five years later. It's it's grain. It's all in grain. So we find these silos everywhere. And by the way, that little that story of Solomon over taxing everybody mm-hmm. because he trying to bring in all these this funds or the in revenue because ultimately it's going to be worth value, even though it wasn't currency. Right. Um, his son, Rehoboam, after Solomon went out, um, it was hoped that he would stop this. He didn't. The The elders told him, you need to back off these taxes or you're going to divide. And they were doing the same in Israel. And he said, no, I'm going to tax even more. Mm-hmm. And that's why Israel split because of this. So these silos that divided into the northern kingdom and southern because of the taxes, that was a big reason. They just didn't, they didn't want to do it anymore. So they divided. So literally these silos are telling a story, even though it's in Jordan, of what happened in Israel because the same thing happened there. Right. And it's are these so you're saying that these silos are still visible? Sure. What are they? Oh, yeah. What does a uh, an ancient silo look like? Well, you can see the stone foundation around them. Okay. These circular stones as you're as you're digging down, you start you find these stones in the walls. You start coming down. You got to be really careful because they could they can be a wall. It could be whatever, but you can start to find a circular pattern. And as you carefully dig down, you can really clear it. This is not a wall. This is a circle. And if it's a circle, there's a floor to it because it's it, it was it was all coated in mm-hmm. as a you know, for grain. Wow. So, can you describe a little bit when you uncover these parts of the city? I mean, you're talking about millions of mud brick, and what are some of the fortifications and the structures that <clears throat> are visible um, 
when you're looking at this this uncovered city? Yeah, well, it's it's really quite something. Um, if I could just mention first of all the the walls of of Sodom, how how big it is. Yeah. Um, if you're standing up on that city looking down, it's very very steep looking down into the valley, mm-hmm. and that wall um, was so steep down there that they what they actually did is they created these huge walls built on 35 degree angles to protect the city. Now they're very high. They're very steep, 35 degree angle. And then they would coat them with this, like a, a chalky substance. So if somebody tried to climb the hill, they'd slide. Hmm. And on top of the hill, they know about what it looked like because they found structures of the, um, of the walls and where the guard towers were. Then on top of the, the hill, there would be a massive fortification all the way around it that had um, big, huge walls. And then they had um, defense towers every 25 feet or so where, where um, archers could stand. If somebody could somehow get up this huge wall, which, which was very, very steep in terms of feet of 150, 200 feet. And then you have a huge, huge wall on top with guard towers and then huge gates. Um, <laughs> It's truly, um, and Sodom was never captured, by the way. It was never taken. Yeah, um, you can understand why. Holy cow. It never was. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it's absolutely huge. And then as far as, you know, other structures, you obviously the, the palace I mentioned, it's it, it's just, as, it's been incredible on investigating what they found here. It's really incredible, all the stuff they found. Um, as far as the area I was in, in, the, in, it was beyond the palace area in the upper city. We're that's the only area they dug down. That's where the wealthy homes were, where the rich people lived. Mm-hmm. Some people thought maybe Lot maybe lived up there. The reason they would say that is because Lot, when he came to the city, he sat in the gate. There's a, there's a description of the Bible of how Lot sat in the gate. Mm-hmm. Now, that would kind of just flip by somebody like, okay, big deal. Well, that's a big deal because only the city leaders sat in the gate. Okay, they were so he worked his way up apparently in the city. So I'm assuming that you would that would be the gatekeeper. Is that what that would be? Well, not exactly. No. Uh, the, the gates were like the judges; they were the leaders okay. of the city. The gatekeeper would be the soldiers. They would be above, and they they were above the massive gates. So, and the gates we'll talk about in a minute because they're very significant. Um, so they, you know, so lot. Um, some people believe he was up there. Other people believe he was in the lower city because. His, he was living down there because he was not one of them. Hmm. I tend to think, and I think most people believe the latter. He was in the lower city. Okay. Even and he was wealthy though. And he, the lower city was made up of, they look like mostly Adobe hut type homes. They're all connected. Poor people in the lower mm-hmm. city, mm-hmm. the temple in the middle of it. Okay. Right by the massive gate, which has been discovered where lot once sat, the la- massive gate is in the lower city. So I'm, I'm, you have to picture all this stuff in your mind's eye without in front of me. I know it's hard, but anyway, they found the only independent structured home in the whole lower city is just inside that gate, just to the left of it. Okay. How is that significant? The Bible tells us that when the visitors of Lot came, whether they're angels or who they have described as angels in a couple of cases in the Bible, who came to his house and this it's, it's described as how the townspeople surrounded his house mm-hmm. and they were hounding these visitors. They want to have 
just to be honest with you, they want to have sex with them. Right. They were total perversion, and they would not stop. Anyway, the only independent house found in the lower city is not too far from the gate and inside, and I saw it. You can see where the rooms were. That's it. So there's a strong belief that could be it. It could be Lot's house. That's amazing. It's very close to the actual gate, so that when the warning came to get out, he wasn't very far from that gate. So anyway. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, now, so you he wouldn't have been, obviously, Lot conducted himself much differently than most people that lived in Sodom. So I would assume that he would have been someone that didn't quite fit in. So does that also maybe contribute to the fact that he lived in the lower level, kind of separated from the wealthy up above? I think you made a good point there. Actually, I think that's true. I think that's exactly what happened. Um, I think it was good evidence that he didn't fit in. And one reason, well, there's a lot of ways we know that, but when the, the two angels will describe them as that's how the Bible describes them, came to visit and they came in the gate, they were going to stay in the marketplace, which is right inside the gate. It's always right inside the gate. That's the marketplace of the city where the businesses were. And Lot said to them, no, not there. Come to my house. Mm -hmm. So why did Lot say that? Well, I think it's obvious. Lot knew what was going to happen if they sat in that open marketplace. So he said, come to my house, because he knew how perverted these people were. Right. So that's why he wanted them under protection of his house. And even then, they were all but tearing the house down to get to these visitors. Yeah. Isn't that something? I yeah, mean, <laughs> you know, we talk about how bad things are today with a lot of, in regard to how um, biblical values have been kind of abandoned by society, but it's, it's nothing new under the sun. Nothing at all. Solomon made that point. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, um, so you worked in this uh, part of the city that, uh, did you say you were in the upper part? I was in the upper city. Yeah. yeah. And um, so you told us a little bit about some of the things you found, but can you, can you maybe get a little bit more into what are some of the big things that have been found in that area? Yeah. One of the more disturbing finds is they've been finding a lot of um, on the kind of the, well, uh, before I get into some of the other types of pottery, I mentioned a little bit briefly, but they, they've been finding an awful lot of jars that were buried under homes. They call them infant jars, that there were baby skeletons inside. Hmm. And in addition to the baby skeletons, there was little trinkets, little items, apparently of something of interest to that baby or to the, to the home. And they put the, they buried these under the home. It's not known for sure. There's dispute. There's just no way to really 100% know. Either these babies are being sacrificed to the gods, mm -hmm. which, which happened a lot in that ancient world. Either that was going on, or they were simply um, <clears> that they were they died, and the family wanted to remember the baby by keeping them close to them. We don't know. We we don't know what the truth of that is. So it's hard to know. I hope it's the latter, but I be honest with you, I think it's the former. Because so many people died, children died in childbirth, four out of five. Women wow. usually had ten children and they didn't live past 30, 35 years old. They usually died in childbirth. That when one was born alive was a tremendous sight. So it could very well be, because the city was perverted, that we know that this was a sacrifice to the gods, which is really sick. And we found you know, these things are found. Um, in addition to that, you know, like I said, <clears throat> very elaborate Greek pottery, extremely elaborate, with all kinds of designs and um, all over the place. Uh, mostly Greek, 
I mean, it was unbelievable the connection to um, to Greece here. Just huge. so, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. So, I mean, if they're trading, they're trading with civilizations like Greece. I mean, that's kind of evidence that uh, there there was just a, a lot of wealth and excess. Um, oh. mm-hmm. That's that's inter- that's really interesting. Yeah, and also, um, just to carry that out a little more, um, the Greek influence was bigger than anything else. Now, Greece and Egypt weren't the only ones, but I think I think it's really obvious that the Greeks had by far the biggest influence on Sodom based on what has been found. There's no question about that. So many different things. They found animal or um, animal shapes that were Greek, um, things that you, they would find in Crete or Mycenae or southern Peloponnesus of Greece. Um, the very same things, the very same designs they found inside them. But one of the most interesting things is the gate. Hmm. The gate, the huge gate where Lot sat in, mm-hmm. did not look like any gate in anywhere in the Middle East. Um, it was Greek. It's totally Greek. It had pillars going straight up, a whole series of gigantic pillars going right up with a with a kind of a narrow, about six-foot-wide area being the main entrance area. That's not what any city gate looks like anywhere in israel or jordan or anywhere else it's it's the only one there is completely influenced by the greeks so do you think that that was something that they had the greeks build or do you think it's something that they just copied i think both i think greeks moved there okay i think they were here in fact later the philistines who came later into israel you've heard of them of Mm -hmm. course um they were most likely greek too almost for sure that was based on what the egyptian pharaoh said he had drawings of them and Describe the sea peoples and another story, but um, and just to carry that out a bit more, when I mentioned the influence of the Greeks, the Greeks had, um, especially the Crete, Cretans, the, the Minoans, and also the mainland too, though it's true of Sparta and other areas, their perversion in terms of homosexuality was real extreme, pederastry was very big deal. Uh, young boys were, mm-hmm. were kind of men from ages seven or eight to 16 to 18 years old. They had to be. That was part of the deal. So it was just part of life. I how, mean, that, that I'm was, sorry to pause you there, but how, how prevalent was it? I mean, when you say that, I mean, are you talking, you know, 5% to 20%? No, almost entirely. I mean, that was a way of life. That's what they're expected to do. So this was just something that they all did? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, I, I'm sure there were some people who didn't, but it absolutely, it was a part of life. Um, that, that's pretty well proven, the Spartans, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, and these these people obviously had a big influence on Sodom because their handiwork is everywhere. It's in the mm-hmm. gates, it's in pottery, it's everywhere. And um, it's highly unlikely that a bunch of people from Sodom just sail to Greece and come home, come back with all these diagrams right. because we know, we know the people that they, they left that area for certain reasons. And part of it was uh, some of the violent earthquakes and eruptions, volcanic eruptions and stuff in history. That's probably why the later Philistines came to Israel. Um, so no, I, I think it's, um, uh, archaeology is like a circumstantial case mm-hmm. in terms of like a law case where you put together the facts that you know what you do know when you say, okay, what is the most likely? And it, they know the Greeks had to be there in big numbers. Well, here's a question I want to ask. I don't want to get too much into this this um, topic of homosexuality and, and, and these um, kind of obtuse 
sexual um, variations that they got into. But something like that, I mean, it's not just like uh, these people wake up and it's like, boom, they're all homosexual. I mean, this must have been like a gradual progression that took place over a long period of time. And it was a choice of uh, kind of a, a, a perversion that escalated over time. Do you know what I'm saying here? Yeah. yeah. And it was accepted. You know, it was just a, a way of life. It becomes a way of life. So, it's yeah, it's not just, um, yeah, I, I just think it becomes very, very common. I think in, in Sodom, where their evidence shows it's excessively common. And that was one of the reasons. It wasn't the only one, but it was a very big reason that God specifically listed that he destroyed Sodom. There's no question about it. That was one of them. There were other reasons, too, but that certainly was one. Right. So did it impact, uh, I'm wondering if it impacted reproduction. I mean, if if, if sure. that became a perversion to the nth degree, um, one would think that uh, normal relations that, um, you know, is healthy for families and, and reproducing would have been something that was a secondhand thing that, or secondary, or maybe something that didn't even happen much. Did that lead to the demise of some of these civilizations? Oh, no question. And they know it did Sparta, you know, they depopulated, you know? Um, so sure. It had to, the Sodom that we don't have great records or knowledge of exactly what the population was over time. So it's hard to speak to that, but in Sparta, they do, they know that the population was, suffered greatly because of that. It had to, obviously. Wow. So, so just to, just to kind of recap that one. So the Greeks, you believe have had a tremendous, and some of those ancient civilizations with, uh, that were in that area had a, had a big impact on Sodom and kind of influenced some of these, um, um, sexual perversions, as you say. Um, yeah. Via, via like circumstantial logic, putting this together. Yeah. When you in all this evidence and you know this about their lifestyle, I think, and then you see what they were like when they, when had the visitors come, I mean, you can, you can connect those lines pretty easy. Yep. Yep. So how do they, I'm just curious, how do they, when they're digging and, and you're getting down to these different levels and different layers and um, is it Dr. Collins you were saying? Yes. That, that he was like, I mean, within seconds, he kind of knew, Oh, that's what this is what you dug up, Danny, and here's about how old it is. How do they know? How do they know how old things are like that? That's amazing. You know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I never I, I asked some different questions. I didn't want to take too much of his time. I don't know about him too much, but yeah, I don't know the whole answer to that, to be honest with you. It's just they know the it's by design, it's by the structure of the jar, it's it's the way the flares are different. Um, the, the, certainly the coloring. And he could identify Greek stuff immediately because of the type of colors they always use. Okay. Red, blacks, and so forth. But in terms of dating those, I'm, I'm amazed, you know, because it, I'm just amazed. No, I, I can't really fully answer that because I don't really know. I, I guess I'm just astounded that this guy from New Mexico, right? Yeah. Dr. Collins, he's like, I mean, he would be the preeminent um, archaeologist that discovered some of these you know, I'm, this this has to be one of the greatest discoveries, I would think, when it comes to um, kind of, you know, some of the ac actual definitive proof, you know, not that people that have faith need that, but that demonstrates these stories and brings these stories to life. Has that had much of an impact on the Middle East with regard to, you know, the Muslim world 
Um, are they knowledgeable of, of these discoveries? Now, I, how does it impact, uh, the, you know, I, I, what impact has it had on the, on the Christian world, but also on the those that don't believe in uh, either the Jewish faith or the Christian, the Christian faith? Okay. In the in Christian world, the archaeology world is largely secular humanist, um, which is, you know, if you generalize, and, and, they, and they're mostly intellectual, they're highly trained, it, generalizing, obviously not everybody, that world tends to be more secular humanist than other areas. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And many of them are. But what's going on now, in, the, in my group I was with, there are many archaeologists in fact, many, many of these archaeologists had worked and were actually going back to Israel to work in Israel. And they had worked with a lot of these very well-known secular archaeologists. And they were saying that the finds are coming so fast and furious right now, especially in Jerusalem, in the old city of David. It's stunning. It's almost every day. They are finding stuff to prove every de- details of the Bible like you wouldn't believe. Um, they're finding, well, I mean, I can't get into all this right now. Right, right. But they're finding it all the time. And I asked them, because I know some, I, I won't name these archaeologists, I won't pinpoint them, but I, I know some of them who are the secular type archaeologists. And I said, what about this guy? What about that guy? Because I knew who they are. Mm-hmm. And all these people knew them. And they said, you know what, Denny? These guys are changing. Mm-hmm. They're, we see changes in them. Because, because the, the stones are crying out. That was a description that, that uh, it's actually the name of my presentation I'm doing with this, what I'm talking about right now yep. in the keynote presentation. The stones of Sodom cry out because they are, because they're, they're over and over again, they're proving the details of the Bible. Like you said, the faith is your faith. The Bible, what, what archaeology does is it is kind of a, a backup to what you put your faith in, in terms of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, people would say, you know, the Bible, yeah, it was written so many years ago. There were, you know, there's no backup to it. Well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. There's more backup to the Bible, secondary sources, than anything ever written. Nobody, people don't have any idea. They haven't studied this stuff. <laughs> like, for example, you know, they say that, you know, the, the, the accounts are written far later and they're like fifth hand accounts. Well, that's not true. They, they, the Bible has more backup accounts by in the dozens and in most cases the hundreds than any other history story you've ever heard of and besides that the accounts are written these accounts these other manuscripts that they found were written far closer to the actual event some cases only 30 40 50 years apart than these other historic events like describing alexander the great or the whatever different stories mm-hmm. many of those are three four five hundred years later people don't know this stuff so when they say you know the bible you can't they don't know they haven't studied it right. they don't know what the on this is and the faith is not just because of that you know the facts i listed but it's also important to know what you're talking about yeah you know, it, lot, i think i was don't. listening to a message um by a preacher on YouTube, and he said there have been over 1,500 uh, uh, prophetic messages that have come true from the Bible. Now, I didn't know that number. I'd never heard that number before. Right. But that the mathematical probability is like one in so many trillions. Like, you can't even wrap your brain around it. You can't. It's probably impossible, even. When you get into these prophetic fulfillments, the numbers are they're they're just off the charts. Yeah. yeah. 
But what, what astounds me, because I know uh, being a retired guy that just loves to learn, and I know how much you read and study, and I know you make it a point to know exactly what different archaeological things are going on, especially in the Middle East and in Israel. For you not to know much about this just, to me, demonstrates how, um, you know, the corporate media is really doing their best to, you know, throw a wet blanket on all this stuff that's happening. Because like you say, it's happening so quickly. But how much of it do you really, I mean, these are huge uh, discoveries, and you don't really hear much about it. Well, think about this particularly, though, okay? What What does Sodom represent in the Bible? To you, what does it represent? When you Sodom, what do you mean? Uh, you think of when I think of Sodom, I think of um, God's wrath uh, from people that are disobedient or that refuse to accept Him as God. But mm-hmm. I also see it as, you know, with Lot and his family having having grace and um, allowing him to you know, have a forewarning to escape this place. That's how I think of it. Okay. And, and generally, the reason Lot or the Sodom is always been the story that they want to have not be true is pretty obvious. Judgment. Yeah. I mean, so this particular thing, when it started to come out, the backlash against it was ferocious. Now, it normally isn't any archaeology. When somebody says we've got the proof of the Bible, they say, okay, fine, yeah, right. But as time goes on, then all of a sudden it's like becomes obvious. And because this is Sodom, now the only thing you'll find, is, you know, if you Google it, Googling is is a joke, yeah. obviously. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows that. If you want to know the truth of anything, you can't. They're going to distort everything. They're going to distort anything that they don't agree with. Right. But if you want to look at the actual facts, it's another whole story. And you're not going to find it through a source like that. You know, right. the actual facts of Sodom are now being accepted by all these secular archaeologists. In fact, I even saw in watching their night, it was um, Jeopardy. They even had a question about Sodom on Jeopardy, really? this place in Jordan. Yeah, that's how mainstream it's starting to become. And um, yeah, it's it's big because it represents a story that also Jesus specifically mentioned. That the events of it, it's are the the end of time. Events are going to look just like that. Mm, yep, that's a very chilling event. That is chilling. Yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about the destruction. What happened to Sodom, or is that something you're interested? In? Heck yes, I'm what? interested in that. Yeah, okay. yeah. It, I'll be brief here because I know we've been probably an hour or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. Several years ago, about fourteen, two thousand fourteen or fifteen. Um, they started seeing a whole bunch of pottery with this green glass looking stuff on the outside of it. Mm-hmm. Very, very thin. And they wondered, what is this? What, what is this green glass? They first thought, okay, it's part of the pottery. But they realized, no, it's not. It doesn't even represent pottery because it's super thin. It's real skinny little thing. And they were finding it all over the place. And they were find, finding pottery jars that were jammed into the side walls of the city everywhere. They were literally in the walls. So that was like, what in the world is that about? Because we've never seen this anymore. In other words, they were, they've been propelled and they were stuck in the walls everywhere, all over the place. And they were finding 
specifically now on this this green glass thing. When one of the first ones was found, um, Dr. Collins found it, and he he looked at it, and he said he first thought, okay, this is Muslim because they're, they're big into green glass. And he thought, they thought, wait a minute, I'm way too low here. They weren't, this is way before the time period. I don't know what this is. A guy standing above him, it just so happened, who was on the upper level of, picture him down deep in this hole, in this, in this dig. And a guy standing up above him was an older gentleman who was there, who had worked at, on the first atomic bomb, developing an atomic bomb in New Mexico, okay? He since passed away, but he was a very older man at that time. He said, throw that up to me. So he did. And he looked at it, and he said, that's Trinitite. Dr. C says, what's Trinitite? Because he didn't know, because that's not anything natural. He said, it comes from an atomic bomb blast. Oh, my God. When the massive heat hits the sand, it turns into this green glass. Actually, they found... Ting Tut was one of, uh, on his breastplate, he had one right in the center, one of these green glass things that were from this. And I'll get in a, tell you in a minute what happened here. So he looked at it, he said, that looks like an atomic bomb. And Dr. C says, oh, you're right. Wait a minute. 1700 BC, 20, you know, 3,700 years ago, atomic bomb? I don't think so. And he said, obviously not atomic bomb, but what's going on here? So. Anyway, that started um, a very long investigation. Is what is this stuff? So they're bringing all kinds of this back to labs in New Mexico, including the atomic um, research area and, and other areas, using electron microscopes, looking very, very finely at this stuff. And they decided it is just like Trinitite. So then the question is, how? How could that be Trinitite? Because Trinitite can be only created by a a sudden blast of about 15,000 degrees. <laughs> okay. And there's no kiln, obviously, or whatever. I mean, it's silly. Yeah, right. So anyway, there, and then they looked at it closer and they started looking at the composition of it. They realized, wait a minute, there's meteorite dust in this thing. There's, there's actually parts of meteorites in here. So what's going on? So more and more study into this, deeper, deeper, deeper. They kept digging, digging over a period of time. And what they ultimately came to the conclusion was this was an airburst. So what's an airburst? Well, we have meteorite showers all the time in the atmosphere. You see them up there, and I mean, occasionally. Yep. And every now and then a meteorite can hit the Earth. That creates a crater on rare occasions. And on very rare occasions, a meteorite can come through and vaporize itself inside our atmosphere. And sometimes they can do it right by the surface. The ones that do it right by the surface cause extreme damage. They're rare. They're called airbursts. When a meteorite literally blows up or vaporizes itself just before it hits the Earth. Now, they compared this to a massive airburst. And the biggest one they ever know of, had known of was in Siberia um, in a place called Tungusta. And, and I think it was like 1906 or somewhere in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. where it literally vaporized a huge part of the taiga, the, the pine yep. forest up there. Yep. And it, when it came, it comes in at tens of, it's about 10 to 15,000 miles an hour, maybe even faster. They actually saw the light over England. They could read newspapers at night. They were going to hit the other end of Siberia. That's how dramatic it was. Wow. After doing this extensive study, secular research 
a big one called Scientific Reports, and I have the report right in front of me here. And I can't, I won't read it all, obviously, but it says a Tungusta-sized airburst destroyed Tel Hamam, which is a Jordanian Arabic word for Sodom, a middle-aged bronze city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. And the whole report goes into massive depth to say this was an airburst, just like Tungusta. Now, the Bible describes that um, it says that, well, before I get into that, they, fu- they found... Um, let me, let me get into that first for a second. Let me just, I'm, I'm covering my brain spinning here a little bit. Back up. So, you got a lot of information up there. Yeah. I mean, there's too much spin in my head. I'm trying to cover this without getting too much stuff. So, yep. you know, don't, don't want to go two Take hours there. there dude. The Bible says the Lord reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah. Now it's translated sometimes as sulfur and fire or sulfur and lightning. That the correct translation is Gopri is lightning. That's sometimes translated sulfur, but it's not correct. It's lightning, and Aish is fire. So, in other words, the description says Sodom was destroyed with lightning and fire. Well, that would be a physical definition of an airburst coming in at 15 to 20,000 degrees when it hit. They know exactly how it came in based on the, the destruction or the movement of all that pottery I mentioned was stuck on the wall. It came in right down the Dead Sea, slightly slightly from north, um, slightly in a south, let's see, let's see, southwest direction, right at Sodom, right down the Dead Sea. And when it, southeast direction, I'm sorry, from, yep. it came right down the Dead Sea. They know that by the, by the destruction. And it was even described that Abraham saw it, you know, the Bible says that. And when it came in, it also picked up a massive salt plume out of the Dead Sea, which is 8.6 times saltier than the ocean. And it deposited all over that area, all over those cities of the plain, that Jordan Valley, destroying life there for 700 years. The Bible explained that this was going to happen. It did happen, I should say. And they found in, uh, they found in that destruction level salt everywhere. Soil was extremely salty. And they found pottery with salt blown right into it, baked right into the pottery. Now, the whole description of Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt that, you know, people yeah. joke, about, what does that mean? It's like she's standing here in the, you know, that's ridiculous. What it was is there was a salt blast that came down at Dead Sea. They know this from the evidence, clearly. She obviously, they were, they were directed by these two angels to get out of here, mm-hmm. um, get out of that place. And they were let out that gate. And it sounded like they went down the Jordan side of the Dead Sea. That's a long discussion I had with Dr. Collins trying to figure that one out because they're going to a city called Zoar. I can't get into all that right now, but he, they were going that direction. The blast was coming in and that the angels knew what the, these messengers knew it was time to get out of there. And apparently as they were, they were running and says into the mountains to get out of it because you're going up in the higher area. This blast was not everywhere it's a defined area they were away from this blast but she hung back why did she hang back hang back well she obviously probably was thinking about her nice home don't want to leave it yeah you know had a good life there inside him she didn't just stand next to them she was way back she was way back closer to the side where she would have gotten into that plume and what a pillar of salt just means she was vaporized by salt it would have been like like you know like uh, knives going through your body because it's coming so fast and it just that salt actually destroyed the area too. That, that's an incredible um, 
that really texturizes that story and provides so much more concrete, Not again, evidence, not that we need evidence, but um, wow, that's just incredible. <laughs> and the evidence is everywhere. It's, it's, a, the, it's truly astounding. It, the destruction level where this happened is seven to eight times saltier than the other levels. So the salt on top of everything else destroyed it. And the Bible says it did. So that's exactly part of it. And, and it, it was uninhabitable until that salt. For uh, years, there, there was nothing there. Nothing was built inside them for 700 years. That's what blew them away. Remember I told you when we started that Jordanian tank up on top? Yeah. Created a trench. And then they, then they, they got down to a level. That first level would have been the monarchy period, 1000 B.C., and then they went down not that far, and they got into that that putrid-smelling sulfur area, which turned out to be way back in time because nothing was built in the meantime. Yeah, seven hundred years of nothing going on is a really long time. That's insane. It never happened before anywhere else I know of. Wow, I tell you, that's that's incredible. That is yeah. that is amazing. I I, I just. Uh, and you say that there's stuff like this happening, you know, where they're discovering these biblical truths all over the place, probably on a daily basis. We don't hear much about it. Boy, it sure would be cool if you could come back and maybe even fill us in on, on some of these things that, that are going on. It is on a daily basis. It, it's literally on a daily basis. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to, like, I read, you know, I know what I'm looking for, initial stuff here, but... It, it, no, it's not in the news. They don't want to talk about stuff like that. We we literally are a level of, it's it's so depressing to me that we're at such a low level of knowledge of even interest of knowing things mm-hmm. that it's dangerous because you know Washington talked about that and all the forefathers that if we become a country that doesn't really want to know and the reason is right now it's not all people's fault. It's obviously the extreme brokenness of the media. Because they're not informing people. And I would say, I would make an indictment on the schools. Oh, absolutely. And I think think we we can start with the university level, because that's where the teachers are coming from. And, and, uh, of course, the unions and the Democratic Party. And I don't want to get political in this presentation, but the one thing you have to hand it to with the secularists and the non-believers is they have done one whale of a job of creating this singular movement that doesn't veer off the path at all. I mean, they keep people in the dark on just about everything that's meaningful. The word dark is the right word because light is knowledge. Right. Know the truth about things. Like Jesus said, you know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's to know, literally to, to try to learn the information and process it. How does this relate? I have never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah. We're at the most dumbed down period I can I've ever seen. I'm turning 72. And it's truly stunning to me. And this is one of the most dangerous parts of our history because people don't know what's going on. And I'm not I don't mean to sound arrogant like I'm condemning anybody. I'm, I'm not. I'm just speaking out of frustration. They don't know what's going on because they're not being told what's going on. They don't have access to information, or maybe they're not, they don't have time to study it. You know, so it's it's, and that's where we fall. If we don't know what the truth is, if, if somebody says to a young kid that's a young boy or girl that, um, you know, you're, you're not really a, 
you're not really a girl. You're not really a boy. You uh, you might have other feelings, and it's not a, that's not an absolute thing. You you can switch, and you get into this whole transgender thing, but it's destroying this country. Yeah. Whereas they can tell them, if you're if you're white, you are a racist. That is a fact. That's an absolute. So we are being driven by this an ideology that's it's it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning to me that people can buy into this stuff. No, we need to know what's going on, and we need you know. And there are a lot of good voices out there now, like the Charlie Kirks and stuff. They're they're trying to bring truth, but it's um man, it's like it's like you know swimming upstream big time. I just read an article today that was a, a compilation of the quotes of the founding fathers. Um, I think there were like 16 or 18 different of, of the founding fathers where they expressed um, all of their messages were very similar. And these are just short quotes that they gave that were probably excerpts from different speeches and letters that they wrote mm-hmm. where they reiterated time and time again that if you remove um, God and your Christian faith as the center point of what you do, and if this country does that, that destruction is nigh that basically that if you remove God as your centerpiece um, it, you won't last and they they repeated that over and over and over and over they did constantly because obviously it's true and we're based on that and and obviously those people that have whatever agenda this globalist agenda is entirely anti-god <laughs> uh, they want nothing to do with God Yep. You know, whereas God is speaking out, you know, all over the place, and it's very loud and clearly. Um, if I could just just go back to this judgment on Sodom one more time. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a summary verse in Ezekiel that kind of gives all the sins of Sodom. Now, there's no question the detestable practices, as it's called, is one of them. And I would say, you know, what scares me right now is we're in a stage at this time where, you know, we're just what I just said, telling kids that, and this transgenderism is a gateway to transhumanism, Mm -hmm. which is a level I can't imagine God allowing to happen. But this new normal today is stunning. I mean, where kids are being, you mentioned to me how kids start thinking, well, maybe I'm this or maybe I'm that. Well, they they didn't think that way when I was teaching because they weren't being told that constantly. Right. You know, it's obviously a self-fulfilling. These are impressionable kids. Come on, wake and, up. And thank the media and social media for that, too. Totally, totally. You know, it's, there's an agenda, and these kids are the victims. Yep. It, it just ticks me off to no end to watch what's going on. But anyway, back to Sodom. Why was it destroyed like this? The, the sins of Sodom, that was the biggest one. It wasn't the only one. The other ones were arrogance. Hmm. In other words, it's all about me. Um, I'm, I'm man is great. I don't need God. It's all me. It, there was another one listed was overfed. Now what that meant was in the ancient world, people weren't, weren't, uh, like fat, a fat person was somebody that looked like overfed cause they didn't have that much food. So it was like this idea of being gluttonous, mm. unconcerned was another one, which means, you know, they didn't care. It's mm. like, yeah, thought we're up here in this massive city. We could care less about these little guys down below the peons ignored the poor and needy. Mm-hmm. Another one was haughty. It's interesting to me that two of the five, two of the six in the detestable practices is a big one, but two of the six are the same are the same lines: arrogant and haughty. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the whole jet. That's the whole concept of postmodernism. This whole thing today that 
I'm the source of all truth. I don't need God. It's me. It's me. It's all about me. Man is good. I mean, that's the original sin, the Garden of Eden. And two of those, two of those are the very same idea, plus the detestable practices. Now, here's what Jesus said. Now, maybe, I don't know how many, if you have any more questions, but I, I, I want to get this out. Because yeah, definitely. I want to I know this. Here's what he said in regards to all of this. Okay. It was the same in the days of Lot. He's speaking of the end of days. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and lightning, it's a sulfur, but it's lightning, rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Wow. That is sobering. What you just pieced together is is so indicative of modern culture where we we are relying on our own intellect this secular humanist movement you know kind of like uh, one of the founding fathers in in the 20th century was John Dewey mm-hmm. where you know our own intelligence is is our answer we become like these little mini gods where we can define our own truth objective truth goes out the door mm-hmm. and i think other things that I've considered with that as well is like uh, the legalization of marijuana and just the culture of, of drinking and getting high. And because what that does is that takes you to a, um, of a level of complacency. You're never really zeroed in on what's going on. You're not dealing with reality. Mm -hmm. And, And I think this, this, this society, I don't think we deal with reality and we're distracted by sports and we're distracted by I mean, we're distracted by politics, even, in, in a sure. lot of ways, because we're not looking at the spiritual elements that are the true reason why our country is where, where or where it's going. And sure. Uh, so, man, what a what a what a picture you paint with with that biblical truth that you just shared. Um, it's an amazing verse. It's it's sobering. It's it's not the end of the story for obviously somebody is put their faith and trust in Jesus clearly, but to, to, to literally to think about what he just said there and to think about what's going on now, because he said these words and if me put it together, what I, you know, the whole story of Sodom, it's incredible. It is. Yeah. It's sobering. Hey, I, I have a question. I mean, I, I've always had a lot of respect for your opinion. Um, and being that you spent your, your days, your career in education and you see what's happening today and you see the different um, ideologies that, that uh, Christians are up against students and teachers. And I could hear it in your voice, how passionately and kind of uh, righteous anger that you have about the messages that uh, the public schools are now sending. And if you were a teacher today, I'm just curious, um, what advice would you give to those in the teaching profession with regard to how to handle um, what we're confronted with on a daily basis? What would you say? 
it's hard, you know, because I know what it was like when I, you know, I was retired in 2009 and what it was like then, and it's changed a lot. Um, I, I just think you have to be true to yourself as much as you can in your own room when you shut that door and you're dealing with your students. And there's, and that's easy for me to say, I'm not teaching and I'm not, you know, I'm retired and I know so much has changed. There's so many pressures. But I know you, and I know that you, you wouldn't cave in to these things. I know that for a fact. No, I mean, I, you know, I would, when I taught, I um, would, would actually cover a lot of Bible. I had a couple, some parents actually told me my student um, learned more about the Bible and, your class yeah. in or whatever, but, yeah. but you can know you can because it's history. Right. So you can cover a lot of this stuff. You know, you really can. So even, you know, like obviously this story to bring back to your seventh grade or something is not something easy to do, but um but there's a lot you can't because there's there's a lot of facts out there and and I know this other stuff is shoved down and it's you know there's so much so much um so many pressures but and there's so little integrity and trying to justify what's being taught but yeah i I literally just the only thing i could say is just you know within your room Mm -hmm. you you be true to yourself i've been trying to pray more um for wisdom and and just uh, for god to help me and other christians and students to navigate you know our, our path forward i mean just like lot lived in sodom i mean we're in the world. We're not of the world. We need to, we need to love people that we're we're with and and uh, that we work with and and uh, and I think I think good teachers do that. And I think that uh, that you know demonstrating that on a daily basis is a uh, a testament of what a, a Christian person should be and how they should conduct themselves as well. So you can you can you be know, an example. For sure, it's by your lifestyle. Um, for sure, I mean that that's for certain. Um, it's the by the kids know if you really care, you know, right. for example, or is it just some contrived thing? They know, mm-hmm. they know if you're sincere, and and that's that's a big part of it because you, you, it's by your, 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 what the way you act, you're exemplifying something that's inside of you. Yep, yep, example. Yeah, well, Denny, again, awesome. And and I just discovered something a couple days ago that, um, I can actually put slideshows up there on spotify um not on the apple platform but on spotify so uh we could actually there is a way for us to communicate where i could be recording a slideshow while we talk so maybe in the future that's something that we can set up and i think uh people would find that really interesting i mean this was great but to be to be able to because i know you always do a great job taking pictures so yeah like on this yeah Lights, tons of pictures, yeah. Oh, Diagrams nice. inside them, all kinds of things, yeah. You name it. Yep. Well, hey, thank you so much again for being with us. And um, we're actually heading up north tomorrow, so we'll look you up when we get up there. Sounds good. That sounds good. Awesome. And we appreciate it, Denny. Have a great day and uh, come back and talk to us again soon, okay? All right. Thank you. All right. See, see you, Denny. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, hey, thank you for stopping by and spending some time with us on the Edu Babble Emporium. I hope you enjoyed that time with Denny Thompson, truly one of the wisest and most knowledgeable people I know. Have a great day, and we will talk to you again very, very soon. Bye-bye.